2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Reagan Gillum, and today I'm talking to Drs. Paulina Alberto, George Reed Andrews, and Jesse hofnang Garskoff, who are the editors of the book Voices of the Race, Black Newspapers in Latin America, 1870 to 1960, published by Cambridge University Press. I want to welcome you all to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. So, I wanted to thank you all for joining the podcast to talk about voices of the race. And I wanted to acknowledge how all of your work has really deeply contributed to our understandings of Afro Latin Americans in different historical contexts. Um, you all, all of your analyses have covered Black communities in Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, and the Dominican Republic, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and New York City. Listeners can find more information about your work on the webpage for this podcast episode because the number of monographs between you all is just expansive. And so all of you have really, you know, steadily and robustly contributed to the historical study of race and blackness in Latin America. And I wanted to begin with this question of how did you come to study Afro Latin America? What sparked your interest and, you know, what drew you into the field?
1: Reagan again, thank you so much for having us. Um i I have been in the field the longest, so I'll start out. Um, I went I was in high school and college in the 1960s, and of course, at that time, race and black organizations and the civil rights movement and the Black Power movement were very much on the national scene, setting national agenda for politics and discussions of race. And I then ended up going to graduate school in Latin American history. and when I started graduate school it, became clear pretty quickly that not a great deal of work had been done on those questions in Latin America. Although one of my professors was Thomas Skidmore, great specialist on Brazil, and he every year would bring back materials from Brazil, which made it pretty clear that those discussions were taking place in that country. And I got kind of interested in this and ended up um, doing a dissertation on black history in Argentina. Um, scholars in Argentina thought that was a kind of a strange topic to be working on. But when I got back to the U.S., people were very interested in hearing about that history. And it alerted me to the fact that there was going to be an audience for this kind of work. And so I just kept doing it. I moved on to work on Brazil, on Uruguay, and to do research on Black history in Latin America as a whole. And that's how it happened, that I ended up devoting a life to Latin, Afro-Latin American history.
0: and this is Jesse. Um, I, um, before I became a historian, I, uh, spent some time working in education and as a community organizer in a neighborhood in uh, upper Manhattan in New York, um, that was largely, um, populated at the time by Dominican immigrants and actually a lot of Dominican immigrants still live there. Um, and while I was doing the work in that neighborhood, I, I found myself introduced to, um, To articulations of blackness and to uh, articulations of racial politics that were unfamiliar to me. It's not necessarily obvious, because this is a podcast, but I'm a white person. Um, I had grown up in neighborhoods and schools that, uh, that I shared with other white people, but also with African Americans and Puerto Ricans. Um, and even with that experience, what Dominicans were saying to me and the way Dominicans were, were talking and thinking about race was really different from things that I had experienced before. And I became really interested in trying to think about how, and I should say that, that you know, that population was largely Afro-descended. Um, and so I, I became interested, you know, as I was thinking about maybe becoming a historian, I became really interested in trying to think about the ways that Afro-Latin American people, um, when they come to the United States in, in, interact with the U.S. racial system and interact with the other communities among whom they live around questions, not just questions of race, but partly around questions of race. Um, and then um, also, you know, arriving in graduate school and as I developed as a historian, became more and more committed to the idea that in order to fully understand that set of interactions, one had to go back and actually become really serious about the kinds of racial ideal ideas and systems of meaning that had been operating in the places that people who came to the United States came from. So I really gotten involved in trying to think about how you study those two spaces or spheres simultaneously and really focus on the people who move back and forth among them or two or more.
3: And uh, this is Paulina. And uh, for me, it had to do in some ways with experiences I had as a child. Um, I moved around a lot. as as a young person um, between Argentina, the United States, and Brazil. And my earliest memories, because I was a child, I was very young when I moved to the United States. I lived in New Rochelle, um, which had a very integrated uh, public school system. And so I had a lot of African-American friends and neighbors. And when I moved back to Argentina um, several years later, uh, when I was nine years old, I found that um, I, I couldn't really find a lot of people who identified as after descendants. Um, And the way people talked about race there was just so different than in the United States. Uh, And then Moving, you know, spending a lot of time in Brazil as a child because I had family there. I discovered yet another sort of Latin American space in which uh, sort of demographics and the ways people spoke about race were yet again completely different, both from the United States and from Argentina. So I think I had this kind of um, comparativist interest um, growing up and trying to figure out sort of what that meant um, for the history of the Americas. So when I got to graduate school, this this kind of had followed me. Um, around, um, I became really interested in issues of slavery and diaspora. When I wanted to go study Argentina, though, I met with a lot of sort of resistance and lack of interest, and that was kind of seen as a non-topic. So in my case, to enter the field of Afro-Latin America meant studying Brazil. That seemed to be sort of the obvious place um, for me to work on, um, and in part because I had this this family history of having of having been there and speaking Portuguese. Um, And from there, it was, you know, the whole field opened up to me. Of course, the field called Afro-Latin America didn't quite exist. It's been one of the wonderful things that has developed over the last 20 years. Um, But yes, that's how I sort of came into it.
2: Thank you so much for those responses. It's so important to think about how, you know, we get into these fields because we spend so much time in them and really, you know, our careers and our lifetimes working on them. So it's really helpful to hear, um, you know, how, how people enter into this into this work. And so Um, You all collaborated on Voices of the Race, which brings together newspaper articles from the Black press in Latin America, and then you translate them into English and then present them, you know, to the reader. And so how did this project come about and what made you all decide to, to pursue this?
3: Well, the three of us had um, for our own monographs been working with the black press for many years, Um, in some cases, in in all cases, the black press of different Latin American countries. Um, But usually, you know, as one of several sources um, and sort of forced to do an enormous amount, not forced, um, had the pleasure of doing an enormous amount of reading in the black press, but then forced to select very small snippets to put in our books. Right. Right. And for me, and I think for all of us, that always felt like such a loss in a way, like so much was being left um, behind. And also, you know, when you're selecting quotes, um, as much as you're working to contextualize the article, the intellectual traditions, the social realities that these words came from, you're ultimately sort of submitting that those words to the logic of your own argument and book. And I think for all of us, it was exciting to think about sort of helping to present these these works, these um, uh, really, in some cases, masterpieces of black thought in their own logic, on their own terms, for readers to um, to get to know and to interpret how you know how they would like to interpret them without us quite so much in the middle. I mean, of course, we are there, we are the translators, and we are writing the head notes, but this was an opportunity to, if we did things well, then we would mostly disappear from the middle, I think, is how we thought about it. Um, and also because, you know, for Latin American, for Afro-Latin American thinkers and activists, um, reading the U.S. Black press has been historically um, a, a, an extremely uh, consequential um, and important experience. Um, but the opposite has not been true, right? Because of the way translation works, um, it has not—you know—there have not been as many opportunities for U.S. audiences to become acquainted with the Afro-Latin American press. Um, so this seemed like kind of an obvious thing to do as a next step after having worked so extensively with the press and really knowing what what a wealth of of black thought, black life, black experiences from Latin America resides in those pages. Yeah, thank
2: you for that. And that's, that's so interesting, the idea of presenting the articles as, as unmediated as, as possible, right? As you say, of course, you know, there's selections that have to take place, but, um, but I like how you, how you said that, because I, in many of your works, I've gone through the footnotes and I've seen the references and now I, you know, one can actually see the, um, you know, the sources and and see other things in them. So uh, thank you so much for that. And so the introduction to the book, Voices of the Race, it, you know, provides us this entree into Black newspapers in, in Latin America. And um, And as I said before, your book includes articles from Black newspapers between 1870 and 1960. And so I wondered if you could briefly Um, Tell us about the Black press in Latin America. Um, What is it? And why did you choose the presses from Argentina, Brazil, Cuba, and Uruguay to focus on?
0: Hi, this is Jesse. Um, well, there's a there's a, I think there's an easy answer to that question, especially the last part, why choose those four countries? And there's a there's a more complex answer. Um, the easy answer is that those are the four countries that have a black press. Um, but the more and actually even within those countries, it, the the press that we, we look at really is focused on on just a few cities, right? So um, Buenos Aires, Montevideo, um, and then the city and state of Sao Paulo, and and most of the press that we've looked at from Cuba is from, from the city of Havana. Um, and we, in the introduction, we tried to think through why it might be that those were the places in Latin America that developed a black press. And I should say that we thought of a black press as being not just journalism done by black journalists, self-identified black journalists, um, but also journalism done either to a black communal a community audience or oftentimes also to a mixed audience, but in the name of a black community, right? So it these are these are newspapers that are that are specifically present themselves as black newspapers, or um, as we also note in the introduction, they don't always necessarily use those are our words, black newspapers. They don't always use those words, but they use other words to reference a collective identity around Afro descendants um, or color. Um, So, but the the the, uh, we we hypothesized that one of the reasons why those four areas, the the three cities plus the state of Sao Paulo, um, have the concentration of this of this press is that they were places with actually with in a region that does not where not every part of the region has white majorities. These are urban spaces with white majorities, but significant and 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 highly literate black minorities, Um, and that contrasts with other places that might have. Black or Afro-Latin American majorities, but where either they are so far in the majority that there's that that the that the, the the need for to create black community within a white dominated society is is articulated differently, or where literacy is so low that really newspapers are not the most efficient way to build community, or or not a very efficient way to build community. So that's the the simple answer is that this is where the black press was. The more complicated answer is that. Um, even though I, you know, we I think we'll, we'll stand by that, and we obviously were willing to admit that more black newspapers may be discovered elsewhere. We're not trying to argue that there never will be or never were any. These are the ones that are available to us. Um, the more complicated answer, though, is that um, in fact this this uh, this intellectual production that we're focused on the black these black presses these black newspapers and magazines um, they actually came about within a much broader field of Black journalism and Black intellectual production across the region, much of which we we wouldn't call a Black press, right? So there are lo- lots of examples of Black journalists uh, uh, oftentimes uh, running their own newspapers or working together in, in, in collectives uh, that are majority Afro-descendant to produce newspapers in places like um, coastal Columbia, um, uh, Puerto Rico, um, where, but, but those newspapers don't articulate an idea that they're representing a black community. They might articulate, uh, an artisan or a working class community. They might articulate, in even in Cuba and, and Puerto Rico uh, articulate nationalist politics or liberal politics. Um, and that there's an, even there, even beyond that, there are, um, there are these really other, other interesting kinds of examples of black journalism. There are black Afro Latin American journalists who participate in mostly English language press in the United States and in uh, in Central America. Um, so it's a black press that's mostly an English language black press, but it has uh, Spanish speaker col- columnists. And there's, of course, many, many kinds of intellectual production that that, that by Afro Latin Americans outside of the press. The thing is, a project that tried to do all of that would get way out of hand and actually maybe not contribute as much specifically to the conversation as a as a as a project we felt that confined ourselves to just the the narrower view of what what a black press is. Um, And so we and, you know, the fact that we'd also worked extensively with these with these four, um, four national press black presses made it much much more convenient to do that. And, and we thought, thought that while situating the black pre- these four black presses within the broader field and trying to think about where the where the boundaries between this kind of intellectual production and others are clear and where those boundaries are maybe a little fuzzy was very productive. But that really, we we, did, we wanted this to be the beginning of a conversation of, of, or, or to contribute to a much broader project of making that much broader field of Afro-Latin American intellectual production available to U.S. and other English language and this just seemed like the the right first
1: step.
2: Yeah, and and to this uh, question, I think of this idea of um, intellectual production. um, In the introduction, you reference the black press and I'm I'm quoting you and saying, uh, those newspapers and magazines are the richest and most concentrated venue for black voices in Latin America, and that's from the first page. And so, you know, what you're saying um, previously and this, this quote, it really s- struck me because, you know, we know that the majority of people of African descent in the Americas are in Latin America. And, you know, especially when we think about just the saying, like, oh, Brazil has the most people of African descent outside of Africa. And then, of course, you add all of the other countries in Latin America. Um, you're talking about a very large population. And of course, very complex and, and differentiated as well. Um, and so I wondered if you could really speak to the importance of these newspapers in excavating the actual voices and perspectives of uh, Black Latin Americans.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is read again. Um, as, as Jesse and Paulina have said, we had spent a lot of years among the three of us working through those newspapers and reading them as part of our research. And the contrast between how rich the voices were in those newspapers and how terribly hard it is to recover black voices in any other historical source in Latin America was really striking to us. Um, Historians have been working really hard over the last 20, 30, 40 years to recover black voices in sources of all sorts in court records in church records in employment records in military records etc cetera, etc cetera. but the voices are always mediated they're very sparse they often are not even identified as being black but here in the black newspapers you just had the mother load i mean it was almost i remember the first time i read a black newspaper in argentina And I had been scraping along in the censuses and the church records, desperately trying to find little bits of information. And here, all of a sudden, were a whole bunch of people just talking at length about the condition of being black in Argentina. It was the mother load. Um, Paulina talked, oh, and of course, what's one reason that those Black voices are so scarce? Because rates of literacy in Latin America as a whole for all racial groups are so much lower than they are, for example, in the United States. So in the U.S., not that it's easy to recover Black voices, but you certainly have many more options for finding them um, than you do in Latin America, where so, so, uh, so many fewer people have the ability to leave written evidence of their lives. Paulina referred to the African-American newspapers and how important they are in the United States, even in a situation of mass literacy. Um, Absolutely. And in fact, one of the exercises I do in my undergraduate course on Afro-Latin America is to assign newspaper articles from the African-American press in which black journalists and intellectuals talk about their observations of black life in Latin America and what they think was going on there. And we, of course, knew that black writers in Latin America were talking a lot about the United States and what they believed was happening there and how it contrasted their situation. So we really students have easy access to the papers uh, produced in the black press in the U.S. We really wanted to give them the possibility of seeing what some of that commentary and some of those discussions Uh, in Latin America were not just about racial conditions in the US, which is just one of many, many topics that we cover in the book, but the Black Papers are the place to go for almost everything having to do with Black life in those countries and in a highly concentrated way that you're just not going to find in any other source.
2: So I imagine that this book really took a lot of work to put together. And I was thinking that, I was imagining as I was reading through the articles, that you, know, you all had to comb through these newspapers, develop the different themes, choose the articles to include, translate them, draft the descriptions, gain permissions, and I'm sure there's other things that I'm also you know, missing. And so I wondered if you could talk about the process of putting the book together. How did you choose the articles and you know, how did you organize the work that you all did?
0: Um, yeah. Thanks for that question. This is Jesse again. Um, it, yeah, th- it, it took a, an enormous amount of work, and some of the things you noted were were in fact quite complicated to manage, including things like trying to to track down permissions. Although m- much of the material that's that that we ended up publishing is in the public domain, um, uh, and also the problem of selection. Right. The, this is a it's a massive archive of wonderful material. And we found ourselves in a situation where we wanted to try and actually have a manageable book (laughs) that somebody would want to publish and somebody would want to read. Um, And that meant, of course, leaving many, many things out. And so that, that process of selection, both with the newspapers that we were very that we were very familiar with, and then at least in my case, there were some collections that I had not ever used before, and I found myself feeling, you know, sometimes a little bit um, anxious about trying to read through quickly and select from such rich material which are the which were the things, um, you know. And and in the end, we ended up deciding that the thing that would be the most useful would be to select articles. I mean, we we tried to balance article topics out, and we tried to you know. Sh- Present diversity of ideas and opinions, um, and we tried to balance the different countries and the different uh, the different publications. But in the end, what we wanted to do was find things that we thought would be really interesting to read. Um, and so, in the end, we would you know kind of bring back suggestions from each of the areas that we had taken responsibility for. Uh, we'd read them in common, and then we'd have a conversation about which were the ones who really seemed the most interesting. And We ended up, you know, I think narrowing down to a really fascinating group of articles, um, which also you know, having the headnotes there allowed us to then point uh, folks in the direction of where they might be able to find more interesting, contrasting, different perspectives. And, and in fact, many of the, the the newspapers that we are you know translating from are available digitally on national um, library websites or on in other in other venues. And we comfort ourselves in the process of selection by telling ourselves that this is really trying to introduce people to the richness of this material not to have the final word on which were the most important mater- materials there um, so these are things that we find interesting that we find thought-provoking that we would want to teach with that we want people to know about but we really just want to make the point over and over again this is just the tip of the iceberg and people who encounter this work through our book should just dive really deeply in I'll say one more thing about the work. It was a actually also, in addition to being a lot of work, it was an incredible pleasure. Um, I have to say, if you have not collaborated with um, brilliant colleagues, it is one of the most fun and rewarding things that you can do. And there were two ways that this happened for me at least. One was, as I was stressing about the choices that I was making in, in translation or in, in interpretation, I knew that I had two people who had my back and we the conversations that we had and the product the productivity that we were you know that not productivity the 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 level of analysis we were able to reach by having conversations about things by disagreeing about word choices by by correcting one another by engaging with one another was really really helpful and the other thing that was a great pleasure was just spending time with these Articles, right? There's, there's nothing like trying to translate an article into your, into your own language um, that allows you to really dig into thinking about the author, what the author is doing, what choices the author is making, what, what references the author is making. And again, going back to Paulino's earlier point, when you're Trying to amass evidence for your own argument, you can leave two-thirds, three-quarters of an article on the floor and be like, I'm not exactly sure what that's about, but it doesn't really matter because what I want to quote is this other piece. But when you're trying to, to translate an article from front to from front to back, you really spend time with these authors. And I found that to be incredibly exhilarating. Um, you know, so both the collaboration and the and the time with the authors was the translation part was really incredibly fun. I again recommend both collaborate and also translate. It's it's really it's a great work.
2: Thank you. That is fascinating. And the articles are all really interesting and just these like vivid, um, you know, narratives and depictions of um, of the author's perspectives and their, you know, their worlds. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, teaching with the um, teaching with the, with the work. And so, you know, each chapter has articles from black newspapers and, you know, you have these particular themes, but each chapter also has discussion questions as well as an introduction that provides this context. And so I imagine that this would, you know, lend itself well to teaching and using the book in classes. And I wondered if you could talk about if you have used this kind of material in your classes or how you could imagine using this material in the classroom.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's also something that I think was behind at least my um, desire to translate these into English, because I had the great fortune at the University of Michigan to be appointed in a Romance Languages department. So I got to teach in Spanish and Portuguese. So I was able to teach with these sources in their original languages. And I saw the effect that they had on students. Um, but I knew that I couldn't do that in English, right? So this was one of the, the hopes was to open up a whole new set of possibilities for using this material in English language courses. So of course, you could continue to use these in you know Latin American literature and thought uh, classes, right? Because now they're in translation. So even for students who are not as advanced, you could of course use it in an Afro Latin America class because um, They cover, the articles cover so many dimensions of. Black experiences in Latin America, um, you could easily incorporate the readings. They're so short, um, and so lively. I feel like they could be easily incorporated into, you know, a modern Latin America survey so that you can have more primary sources that are written by Afro-descendants. Um, and because in many ways, I think that the themes and the periodization will be really recognizable to people who work on Latin America. It would be really easy to pick a few and, and insert them, um, you know, for different topics, right? In independence or abolition or, you know, um, 20th century nationalisms. The the people in this book had a lot to say about all those topics. Um, you could, of course, thinking more sort of hemispherically, um, incorporate these readings in African-American studies courses, diaspora courses, right? Sort of Black Atlantic courses, um, I actually hope to teach an entire course on the Black press of Latin America built around this book, um, and also bringing in, as Reid was talking about, bringing in um, articles from the U.S. Black press that talk about Latin America and trying to put them in conversation a little bit. Um, uh, I think you could, if you have the possibility of teaching uh, multilingually, I think, getting back to what Jesse was talking about, about the pleasures the challenges and the pleasures of translation. I think you could um, do a course in which you walk students through the process of selecting an article, translating it, right? Because grappling with the original, in addition to all the things that Jesse was mentioning, which is that it it puts you into the mindset in some ways of the author, with all of their quirkinesses, because sometimes you just can't for the life of you follow why they jumped from one idea to the next, but you start to You start to figure it out. But also grappling, I think, with um, word choice around uh, racial terminologies, I think is a really productive way to think about the constructiveness and contingency of race in these different settings. So I think that the process of translation could be really powerful for students. Um, So I think all of those ways, but my favorite um, possibility, which is something that I personally hadn't contemplated when we put the book together, but that I really hope is something that will a use to which the book will be put is um, in sort of K through 12 classrooms. So this summer I was invited to do um, one of these uh, K through 12 teacher training um, seminars at the university of Wisconsin. And they asked me to share some material from this book. And I thought, wow, you know, this is, this is challenging material, but yeah, I love the challenge of figuring out how to make this speak to, you know, elementary school students or high school students. So I shared an article. um, It's an article that, well, I shared a few articles um, that are uh, from different parts of the book, but they basically touch on the question of um, African traditions and certain kinds of uh, cultural performances of African origin, um, sets of behaviors that read to the dominant white population as Black, um, and debates within the Afro-Argentine community in the late 19th century about whether those were appropriate or not, debates around respectability, um, around propriety, around how much Afro-Argentines should sort of conform or, you know, conform their behaviors and their culture and their... um, ways of being, essentially, to what was seen as the dominant norm, or whether they should preserve traditions that were Afro-descendant, but which were looked down upon by the broader society, right? So, debates about this. And there's one um, article in particular, written by the Afro-Argentine musician, Senón Rolón, who wrote it from Florence, where he had gotten a scholarship to go study classical music. And he wrote this, this very fiery, very angry pamphlet in 1877 back to the Afro-Argentine community. And he said, you know, essentially um lambasted them for their behavior and saying, you know, you're acting in all of these ways that are making us as Afro-Argentines look bad. And so how do you expect to progress if you are acting in these ways? So he's he's berating them. And then there are a series of responses from other people in the community who say, what are you talking about? These are our traditions. There's nothing to be ashamed of, right? Do not equate, you know, criminal behavior with our traditions. There are criminal people, but you can't extend sort of that category to everything Afro-Argentines do. So there's this lively debate and I thought, okay, well, maybe this will be interesting, Um, complicated, but interesting. And I had elementary school teachers saying, this is amazing. This is this is going to be really helpful for my students. There are going to be students who, first of all, are going to be amazed to find out that, you know, African-American students who are amazed to find out that there are people who look like them in Latin America and that they were having these kinds of debates, which are really relevant to debates that students may be having today. Um, and the way she phrased it, I hope I can do this justice, but she says, you know, this Roland guy, he was really kind of a bully, you know, and he was bullying other people, But at the same time, it's because he was bullied by his society. And I thought, yep, there you have it. That's a great sort of, you know, distillation um, of what's going on. And I think that if you can do that in a way that's respectful of the original sources and use it um, in the K through 12 uh, setting, um, I would be I'd be thrilled.
2: Yeah, thank you. That is fascinating. Um, In my classes, uh, I've taught classes on Afro-Latin America and Black culture and politics in Brazil, and I've brought in sources, um, you know, from Brazil, and I always lament the fact that they're not, you know, translated, and I have to do these translations on the fly for the students. And, of course, we look at the images and things like that, but, um, you know, we don't, uh, you know, I'm excited for them to be able to actually see the actual words and take it in for themselves to think about, you know, from this, you know, from your book, you know, what people were actually writing. And, and then they can think about, you know, their own uh, responses to it as well. Um, and so I was gonna ask a question, if you could take us into the, some of the articles um, in the book. And so the book includes 113 articles. Many are, you know, about a page, page and a half long, sometimes, you know, two to three pages, but as you said, they're, they're relatively short. And so I wondered if you could give the reader you know, a sense of the material, is, is there a particular article that you find interesting, um, or can you tell us about, um, that you can tell us about that you included in the book?
1: Yikes, we hadn't decided who was going to go first on this, but I'll just jump in. And I'll jump in with an article, actually, Reagan, that is not in the book, and that kind of points to the challenges that we faced in deciding what to bring in and what to leave out. And this is an article um, about the nineteen twenty-eight celebrations of May thirteenth, the day of the abolition of slavery in Brazil, in which one of the black organizations, the Centro Civico Pomares, organized a march. They did this every year, actually, in the nineteen twenties. They would march to the tomb of Luiz Gama, who was one of the major black abolitionists figures in the abolition struggles in Brazil. They would go to his tomb, they would have speeches. And then they would march to the offices of the leading newspapers all around Sao Paulo City, which was not as hard as it sounds because all those offices were concentrated downtown. And there would be kind of a ritual exchange of greetings at the offices. They would speak to the editors and the editors would speak to them. And to me, it was such a rich article because it talked about the kinds of messages that people were communicating to each other. Talked about the efforts of a black civic organization to bring the black population public notice, which is why they went to the newspapers. Also, talked about the razzing that the procession endured as it marched around Sao Paulo City. Just a terrific article, which we couldn't include because it was too long, and I was so sad. But um, the re- and okay, so it's not there. The other articles that are in the book are just as good and shorter. So I'll leave it to Paulina and Jesse to talk about a couple of those. Paulina, of course, talked about one already, which indeed is a tremendous one.
0: Um, so this is this is a such a challenging question. It's like taking the selectivity problem and and boiling it down to its to its very essence. So I'm going to cheat and and actually mention a couple of articles. I, one of the things that's really notable about about the the corpus that we that we engaged with and that we've been trying to bring to to the English speaking audience is how dominated it was by male writers and how few female writers were really really found space. Um, and so, but there are female writers in the black press in Latin America. And we, I think some of the, the, the pieces that, that we were able to include by female writers in this book are some of my favorite. Um, uh, and I'll just mention, um, there's a piece, um, from, from the magazine Minerva, a Cuban magazine published in the 1880s, but then also that was, uh, had a second life in the in the 1910s um, that was actually a women's magazine it was edited by men but it was designed to include women's writers and to really foment women write black women writers um, but also it, it was oftentimes presented with the idea of a black women woman audience uh, in mind. Um, and from in 1889 issue, we have uh, a piece called To Cuba by Afrika Céspedes. We, uh, we actually don't know much about, about her as a writer. Some people have speculated that that's a, a pseudonym. Others think that that's, that's her real name, um, but it's a it's a really unusual piece. It's very, very, um, it, it's a very evocative and very elegantly written piece uh, about the experience of women under slavery, right? So in 1889, slavery had only been abolished in Cuba a few years earlier, and I actually think the piece might have been written closer to the end of of enslavement in Cuba, closer to 1886. Um, uh, but it, it 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 reads like a like a firsthand account of an experience of enslavement, and that's very unusual in the black press. And it particularly makes a set of arguments about what enslavement and what what freedom mean for Black women um, and particularly for Black women workers. Um, a really very fascinating piece. But there are other pieces, um, a lot of them from that particular magazine or from other Cuban magazines. Um, but there are even pieces that weren't written by women, but in which women's voices come through very strongly. I'm thinking about two pieces, and particularly from the Uruguayan Black press, one of which is a really evocative and fun interview with an older an elder woman uh from the community about her earlier memories as a migrant to the city and as a as a participant in black social life that was done by a a male journalist but nevertheless really puts that that incredible figure forward and then another f- f- interview from the uruguayan black press about women who are trying to organize in uh the domestic uh domestic workers into a union um and in which uh, the the main voice really in the piece is a woman's voice even though the author is a man um so that i'll stop there but i really take a look through and try and read through to try and find women's voices and and they're they're not only there i mean not as many as we would have liked but they are there and they're really compelling and really quite fascinating in this in this project
3: And the piece that I wanted to highlight um, sort of reminds us that the Black press was not just a place to talk about politics and society and gossip, but also a place for the arts. Um, So there were often, uh, you know, visual arts, especially in the 20th century, once they switched to a magazine format and photography and sort of the reproduction of images became more more possible. Um, but but there's a lot of poetry, short stories, serialized novels. Um, and we wanted to include some of that. We couldn't, <laughs> we hesitated to include too much poetry, because as it turns out, you know, there are two translations of poems in the book. It is a very hard thing to translate. But um, the article I wanted to point to was, it, it's actually a very layered piece. It's an article by Manuel Posadas, who was an Afro-Argentine musician, journalist, editor, and soldier, um, in which he kind of does a, um, a critical reading of an early draft of a poem by another writer, Casillo Thompson, um, and it's a poem that would go on to become really one of the most well-known works of literature by an Afro-Argentine writer, although not really well-known outside of the field of specialists. Um, and it's a poem called Song of Africa, Canto al Africa. And so you get it's its this wonderful article because you have Posadas talking about um, Casilda Thompson's poem, you know, presenting it. He would give a few stanzas, a few, a few uh, yeah, like a poem. A, a, excerpt of it, and then he would interject and talk about how great it was or make a few critiques here and there, and then he would continue with the poem. Um, So you see at once the poem itself in this surprising early draft, um, because it would go on to be changed and published a few years later. And the poem itself is striking because it's this unusually explicit account of slavery and the process of enslavement on African soil. and a really rare indictment for the Afro-Argentine press of white people's collective responsibility for enslavement. So so really clear on the violence of slavery um, and really moving. But at the same time, so you get that poem and you get to see sort of how it developed. But at the same time, you see Manuel Posadas engaged in this process of literary criticism. And this is really important because uh, Black authors in 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 all of these presses in various countries talked about how difficult it was to become an artist, that even if you had talent, even if you had education, which was a big if, and even if you had opportunity, one of the things that was lacking was, you know, helpful and frank criticism. And so the process of seeing one author critique another um, and really have a frank conversation about what could be improved, you know, um, I thought was, was a kind of a, a precious insight into conversations that might have happened off the page as well. Thank
2: you. That is fascinating. And yeah, to take us into those, into those views of the past, which actually still, as you said, resonate today um, with, with readers and um, with those who would encounter these stories. Um, so the last question I think is about uh, the field of Afro-Latin studies. And so you know, this is an ever-expanding field and an um, ever-growing field that's growing more diverse as the years go on. Um, As you mentioned, I think like the field of Afro-Latin studies didn't necessarily exist or one wouldn't even call it this, you know, um, at a certain point. Um, And so I wanted to note too that this book is published in the series called um, Afro-Latin America from Cambridge Cambridge University Press. And so that's, you know, also, that series is also contributing to the field as of course does does your book. And so I wondered, um, what's exciting you about the field of Afro Latin studies, or what are you what are you finding interesting? Is there a particular topic, region, um, or project that has emerged and, and that's gaining traction um, that you're finding you know interesting or generative? Um, you know, to give us your thoughts about about you know what's going on now.
1: Reagan, thank you so much for that, and thank you also for mentioning the Afro Latin America series which um, I edit along with Alejandro de la Fuente. This was an effort on our part uh, to try to get important new work on Black history and Black culture and Black society, etc., out into the scholarly realm. Um, readers or listeners, please go take a look at the website. There are a lot of great books up there, a number of them have won prizes, including Paulina's recent book, Black Legend, on racial stel- storytelling in Argentina. Um, You're absolutely right, Reagan, of course, that the field has just exploded in the last 20 years. Um, If readers are looking for kind of an introduction to that explosion and to where things stand circa 2020, I would suggest another book that appears in the series, which is Afro-Latin American Studies, an introduction. That's a collection of essays to which Paulina and Jesse both contributed um, a wonderful, wonderful essay on ideologies of racial inclusion in the region. And then a book that just came out a couple of months ago, another edited volume, The Rutledge Handbook of Afro-Latin American Studies. This is a monster of a book. Uh, It has 74 articles, a lot of them uh, organized by country, by theme, one section on pioneers of Afro-Latin American studies. um, And quite a few of the authors are themselves Afro-Latin America. Um, This this, uh, article, uh, the book is edited by Bernd Reiter and John Anton Sanchez, and I, I do recommend it. Now, you had, you had asked um, about areas that are particularly generative. Um, there are a bunch, and I will only point to three. Um, one is a wave of new research, which is being written by scholars in Brazil. These are younger folks who entered Brazilian universities in the early 2000s or coming into the 2010s. Many of them entered under the affirmative action programs that were instituted during those years. They're now going on to graduate school, they're writing their dissertations, they're publishing their books, and they're writing, I think, what might come to be called at some point a new black history of Brazil, in which even for the 20th century, inheritances of slavery and questions of race become much more central in Brazilian history than they had been in the more traditional narratives or previous narratives. Um, And the problem, of course, for U.S. readers is that very little of that um, research has made its way into English. As a matter of fact, I don't know if any of it has. And that'll be another challenge for people to start uh, translating and getting that work published into English. Um, A second area that I find super interesting are kind of very close analyses of black cultural production in the region. Um, these books are super interesting to read. And I think what's even more important is that they're interesting, not just for specialists to read, but they're interesting for students to read. Um, and here, Reagan, I'm going to shout out your book, uh, Visualizing Black Lives on Black Cultural Production in Brazil through black-owned media, television, um, And looking closely at the kinds of programs and the kind of messages that get conveyed through that media, I'm going to shout out a couple of books that were published in the Afro Latin America series. Uh, Larissa Brewer-Garcia's book, Beyond Babel, on um, Africans as translators between Spanish and African languages in colonial uh, Colombia and colonial Peru. And Miguel Valerio's book, Sovereign Joy, on African coronation ceremonies in Mexico. These are books that are very fine-grained, really interesting to read. There are lots more like them, um, and they they speak very successfully, I think, um, to U.S. audiences. So I'm always interested to see books of that sort. And a third and final area I'll point to is just that all of these books, almost everything published these days in the field of Afro-Latin American studies, is published within a framework of the Black Atlantic, which when that framework was first articulated, referred almost entirely to the English-speaking world. And one of the challenges of Afro-Latin American studies was to broaden that coverage to include Iberian and French-speaking societies as well. And we couldn't even begin to talk about a Black Atlantic and to start drawing those connections and start drawing those comparisons within the region without all this new work that has been appearing on regions like Colombia, like the Andean countries, like Central America and so on. So we're making huge progress in that area. The idea, not just of a diaspora, but of Black Atlantic uh, specifically, is getting more and more articulated, more and more developed, more and more nuanced. And it's just very exciting to think about where that might go in the next 20 years.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for the shout out. It, this is an exciting field and I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of it. And I'm glad that you all are also a part of it. And so I'm really excited to see what's going to happen um, as we, you know, as we all move along. And so thank you so much for talking to us um, about the book, Voices of the Race. I've been speaking with Drs. Paulina Alberto, George Reed Andrews, and Jesse hoffman Garskoff, who are the editors of the book, Voices of the Race, Black Newspapers in Latin America, 1870 to 1960, published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you all so much for editing and organizing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Reagan.